chatting here with my colleague Darren Olifier with the uh, South African Defense Review, talking about uh, what it is, what its force structure and functions is um, as the first half of our podcast. And in the second half, we'll be talking a little bit about the finance and budget about the Defense Review. Um, what I think we should start with, Darren, um, is perhaps if we, we begin looking at just what is the purpose of the Defense Review in the, uh, sorry, the defense review in the first place um, and, and, and how it sort of fits into the overall structure, I suppose, of the Defense Force. Well, the defense review is really about looking at what your defense force should be doing, what size it should be, and what capabilities it needs to have, along with how much money is required to maintain that limit. Yeah. Right. In that regard, we've only had one defense review in post narcotics Africa. Yeah. That was the 98 defense review. Yeah. The problem is that this was uh, 16 years ago, and hmm. that's way too long to wait between reviews. The reason is that both the country and the world are very different places, uh, or have become different places in the last 16 years. For instance, in 1998, it wasn't envisioned that South Africa would have many troops employed in peacekeeping missions throughout Africa. Uh, it was believed that there would be very little support internally. It was believed that the, border patro uh, the patrolling of borders would be taken over by the SAPS, and um, that effectively it would be okay and, and simpler to have a much, much smaller defense force. Of course, the actual history of the past 16 years has proven that to be quite naive. Yeah. And that's the demands on the defense force have kept increasing, kept growing, and at the same time, it's, it's being met by a defense force that is completely mismatched in its ability to carry out those missions. Yeah. So the purpose of the current defense review is really to bring defense policy, defense funding, and the structure of the defense force in line with what is seen as the current situation in Africa and around the world, uh, the current needs being placed on, on the Defense Force and the, the mission profiles that will be required in the future. Right. So, I mean, with those mission profiles in mind, I mean, the South Africa Defense Force, even now, is doing things like, you know, I mean, you mentioned Border Patrol, they're involved in counter-poaching, there's technically counter-piracy, although, I mean, what pirates there are in the Indian Ocean, I'm not quite sure anymore. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's sort of talk about counter-piracy in the West, in West Africa. There's obviously the question of state defense, and then there's the big one, which is, yeah, I mean, as our operational peacekeeping capability, um, you know, looking in the DRC, we're in Sudan, we were in Burundi, um, you know, we, we were in the CAR briefly, for, <laughs> just for a little while. Well, I mean, we've been, we were, I suppose we were there for several years until the Battle of Bangui. Um, so I suppose with, with, with that in mind, I mean, we, we, we have this, uh, yeah, I mean, like you say, say, we have this defense force that doesn't really have or sort of fit that, that's, you know, that, that, that uh, role, I guess. Um, you know, it can probably, or it has, I suppose, not, I shouldn't talk in probables, but it has uh, fulfilled these capabilities when it's asked for it, but it hasn't actually had that sort of planning capability. So I suppose with, you know, in terms of the force structure then, I mean, we, you know, how, how are we situated at the moment in terms of the South African Defense Force um, versus what, what is in the South African Defense Force in the Defense Review or according to the Defense Review? You know, what do we have versus what should we have, I suppose, is the question. Right. So the biggest issue uh, in terms of structure, which the 98 Defense Review left the SAMDF uh, with, was that it has been separated into functional silos. So 
um, all areas of, of sort of functionality were grouped together and placed in the same sort of area, the same under the same hierarchies. So, for instance, all the artillery is under one unit. It's all all, all in um, Bottestro. Uh, all of the tanks are one unit, and they're all based in Lufthansa. Right. Similarly, all of the rifle, uh, well, in terms of your mechanized infantry, are based in the same place. And it's just very much an idea of you have a unit that does this, a unit that does this, and they're all very yeah. different. So you have example, artillery guns all get put here, regardless of where artillery guns might be used, um, you know, or might be needed, I suppose. Uh, yes. Like sort of soldiers can go on the other side of the country and, well, the motor pool is somewhere in between and, you know, God knows where the tanks go. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah like you said, the tanks so, are put somewhere else. Actually, a great example, which you mentioned earlier, was Bangui. Right. If you look at the structure of the parachute battalion, or parachute brigade, as it was then, uh, which is not a parachute regiment, mm. it was a full functional uh, combat brigade. It had artillery with it. It wasn't terror artillery, but it was light artillery. They had their own armored vehicles. They had um, a water support. It was very much an idea that your parachute brigade was a self-contained unit that could go anywhere and really hold up, hold, hold its own in the fight. If you compare it to what the parachute regiment is today, it's very lightweight. The artillery is gone to the artillery information. Um, there are no heavy vehicles. In fact, all they have are the lightweight and unarmored geckos. Right. So this is the force that was placed into Bangui, which faced off against a few thousand rebels armed with, with, with heavy weaponry. And in response, you know, on their own, they had nothing to, to really compete. The only heavy weaponry they had were their mortars, which were not long-range mortars. Yeah. And the 107mm guns, which were brought by the Special Forces Brigade. So they're not guns, uh, rockets. So that's On the really back of the unarmored uh, vehicles. Specialized yeah, the this, this, this single-purpose units really, really hurts me. Another example is that every time South Africa has deployed infantry units on peacekeeping missions, it has deployed what is effectively a light infantry unit, where the heaviest weapon is really a machine gun. You compare that to what has been deployed now with Force Infantry Brigade, uh, which is now really a composite regiment, uh, which is that they've been deployed with... Um, automatic grenade launchers, they've been deployed with uh, slightly you know, longer range mortars, yet they still lack artillery, they still lack um, heavy armored vehicles, the heaviest armored vehicle they have is the Mamba. So there's this real issue of your individual units being too lightweight and too really focused on, on being infantry mm. as opposed to being able to perform an entire mission role. Yeah. Um. Right, so I suppose, I mean, in that case, then what what is the defence review talking about? I know the the, the sort of the, there is concerns. I think in the opening chapters, uh, I mean, after the preamble and foreign policy considerations and things like that, there was. Although I mean, we I, I suppose we should talk about the foreign policy, but in the, uh, in a few minutes. But uh, st staying with the, the sort of force structure, what what is the defence review looking at in terms of divisions and and, and sort of reorganisation? I guess to summarise it, the best idea would be it's looking towards uh, more mission-oriented units as opposed to being type-oriented units. So the idea, for instance, is you will have a, a um, reaction response capability, which itself will have all the various uh, inherent um, 
equipment needed to fulfill a certain type of mission. Mm. So it'll have organic artillery, it'll have organic uh, heavy vehicles, it'll have organic uh, long-range waters, it'll have organic uh, UAVs, for instance, perhaps. So there's, there's really a focus on, on trying to reorganize the defense force along the lines of being able to de- deploy whole units that on their own can uh, fulfill mission. Now, just to note, this doesn't re- take away the concept of joint operations, which really refers to units being able to work together from different arms of service. So you have the medics, you have the Air Force, you have the Navy, and you have the, the Army. It's really about creating the, the self-deployable units that are able to carry out the full range of required mission of that unit size. Uh, if you compare it to, again, what we have now, it's very much uh, trying, to, trying to orient around efficiency, where the idea was to try and save money. Now that lies have been lost at large number, there's a sudden urge to rethink the way that the defense force is being used and to look at it again as, as, as a, a real means to project force. Right. I mean, looking at that, I mean, I suppose it's a case, yeah, I mean, I think in that sense we had, you know, if you have your armor form, formation and your air defense artillery formation and things like that, you cannot simply just deploy that formation to the DRC. You need you need to sort of take slices from that and integrate it into other things, um, assuming one even knows what the mission is, which I think, you know, is the, is the next big aspect, I thought, um, you know, sort of, of of the defense force was, or the, sorry, the defense review was looking at this notion of, of foreign policy. And I mean, in, in the first sort of two or three chapters, if I remember correctly, I mean, it's been a while since I've read the whole thing. Um, it starts talking about what is South Africa's foreign policy, what is our, what are our, our interests abroad, and, and, and what, what is the purpose of the Defence Force within that. And I thought that was quite an interesting uh, aspect of it for the simple reason, I mean, simple fact that the, the, the South African government doesn't have a foreign policy um, in, in any sort of concrete form. And I remember, just to sort of talk about my, my personal experience here, is that we... we, we visited the African Defense Review consultation sessions back when, I think it was in 2012, um, when these things were still underway. And uh, I think it was held at the, the, the Institute for Security Studies. Um, I attended there with, a, with a, an academic, Lisa Yernberg. And we were discussing, the talking about the Defense Review. And I raised my hand and I asked, how do you how do you make a foreign policy as the defense force? I mean, doesn't that concern you? To which the, the respondents, which are you know, members of the Defense Review Committee, actually said, yeah, it's, 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 it's a big concern. But at the same time, they've been tasked this by you know, then Min- Minister of Defense, uh, Sisulu, um, to, to define what their objectives are of the defense force um, and to you know, create a, a future force based on that. Um, you know, obviously, when the defence minister says you must do this, you must do it. Especially being, you know, good-minded military personnel, they'll they'll make a plan. Um, but I think what's interesting here is that we find a lot of the the considerations in the defence review, as you say, are structured around what is the mission. And there's a lot of thought, that, or at least some thought, rather, being given by the defence forces what their mission might be, even if the government themselves or the sort of non-defence aspect of it hasn't really given it too much thought about what it is. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting. Um, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Darren. Well, that's a great point. And if you well, going through the review, you can definitely see that hesitancy around 
how to plan for a foreign policy that really, as you say, doesn't exist. Uh, so what you've seen is kind of a look at the broad trends and an attempt to take that forward. So, for instance, if you look at South Africa's involvement in peacekeeping, you look at the need for peacekeeping missions to become more robust, a great example being the Force Intervention Brigade, and you look at South Africa's signing up to, to, uh, to the South Africa Brigade, to the African Standby Force, to the African Contingency uh, uh, Force as well, and you really get the, the sense from, from those trends that there will be far more involvement in the future because there is definitely no sign of the need slowing down or the, the need reducing. Yeah. There will be conflicts in Africa for some time to come. There will be issues such as the, the DRC where you have rebel groups and areas which really have little to no government control and which require a, a, a different approach to, from regular peacekeeping. Uh, then from then on, or from that aside as well, there's the look at South Africa's recently expanded its, its um, exclusive economic zone for, for fisheries. Right. It has a massive um, search and rescue area of responsibility, switching down all the way virtually to the Atlantic and half the way to Australia. And then there's the issue of piracy. Yes, well, on the eastern coast, it's, it's really down a lot. On the west coast, it's starting to increase. So combining all these issues, all these signs, these trends, even with the lack of coherence and consistent foreign policy from the, the government, it has been possible to, I think, extrapolate towards a future where the defense force isn't required to be a lot stronger than it is right now. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agreed on that. I think uh, I, I think the defense force now as it is, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a car that's been put into storage, um, except the you know the wheels have been kept in Bloemfontein and the the chassis is now in Gauteng and the the windscreen is in is in Cape Town and the you know spark plugs God knows where the spark plugs are because they they've disappeared, but you know the defence group I think is advocating that instead of simply just reassembling the old vehicle to actually look you know to, to sort of further <laughs> the analogy is to look at what this kind of vehicle is and more importantly where it's going to be used and how. Um, and I think that's that's where that, that, that whole sort of foreign policy aspect plays into it. And I think certainly the Defence Review has done a pretty good job of spelling that out, um, at least, you know, in terms of what what should be done. And I think uh, I think that, uh, that that's probably a good point at which we should talk about. It's all well and good with the Defence Review talking about what should be done. But now the real question is what can be done in, in a sort of budgetary and finance point of view. You know, I mean, the, the, the sort of... The, the funding required for a defense force that is no longer structured towards a cost-saving mechanism is, you know, logically speaking, it's going to cost more. Um, and I think in, in that sense, um, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on on, on what, how the defense budget is going to be sort of improved or not. And I know there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of expectation that the defense budget will increase to accommodate the defense review. Um, and I mean, personally, my, my, my view is I'm, I'm quite skeptical of this, even though I know, you know, every, everybody sort of in, in sort of senior staff positions and things like that are starting to make positive comments about this. Um, we haven't quite seen that same reassurance from the government side. And that's why I sort of remain skeptical about whether or not the, the budget will actually be seen to reflect the, the, the Department of Defense's need. 
um, particularly in light of the fact that the SNDF by all accounts seem to be doing a pretty good job in the you know places like the DRC and with Unimid. So the, I think the, the prevailing school of thought is why should we pay more? So I mean I don't know what your thoughts are on the, the sort of financing about this. Are you are you a bit more optimistic? Slightly. I still think it's, it's <laughs> that's the, the the largest risk of the defence review. Uh, as you say, you know, it's it's there's a big question of where the fun, where the money will come from. It isn't like there's currently a, a major surplus within the budget available right. to suddenly double the defence budget. So, you know, looking at, at the review, I think they've been fairly realistic about this. Uh, first of all, they've planned the future in terms of about five different milestones. And the first milestone is really about what they say is it's stopping the decline. So it's halting the, the, the current loss of capabilities and sort of getting the defense force back onto a stable uh, platform. So in, in this stage, it doesn't actually uh, require a huge amount of money. Uh, it requires the, you know, it's really the same as, same as currently now, but maybe a few billion more. Right. Although that sounds like a lot, it's really not that much. I mean, actually, to take a step back here, a common misconception about the defense review Mm. is that it's all about uh, much more money and mm. about buying equipment, which really isn't the case. Yes, the Defence Review does speak about acquiring equipment, but nothing that isn't currently already on, on the horizon. So, for example, we have new patrol boats, or patrol right. ships, uh, new transport aircraft, uh, maritime patrol planes, that sort of thing. It's, it's really nothing new there. Just that obviously currently the lack of money makes, makes it harder for the defense force to buy its capabilities. Right. And um, if, looking in terms of, of the, the planning, there's really a view towards taking this this timeline up until the year 2018, at the, at the earliest, and slowly, slowly increasing the budget every year until it reaches a point where ideally the budget is, is, is well, the defense budget is around 2% of GDP, or even better, around 3.3% of GDP. Uh, what they refer to is that uh, if you look at the current budget at the moment, it's only less than five cents out of every rand spent on, on or out of the budget goes to the Defence Force. Out of every budget rand, I assume, not the... <laughs> yeah, <it's> not, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So, and uh, the, the Defence budget right now is about 1% of GDP. And that's clearly unsustainable. The review itself speaks about the budget being at, at least 24% uh, below what is really needed at the moment to keep the defense force static, to ensure that no more capital is lost. Just prevent the rot. Yeah. So, yes. So the idea really is to try and meet as many of these milestones as possible, with the review being, I'd say, realistic and saying, yes, we'd like to get to this point, which is obviously milestone five, full capabilities, 3% of GDP, and really, that's capable of fighting a, a full-on limited war. Whereas, more realistically, you're looking at probably about a milestone four, or which is, let's say, a doubling of the current defense budget, so mm. up to one two percent of GDP, yeah. and really just restoring a lot of the old capabilities, um, restoring the ability to refuel your UA costs in mid-air, uh, acquiring new lifts so that you're able to transport your troops around the continent. And being able to fulfill these, these the missions to, for which the defense force has been uh, 
Well, which was part of its mandate. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that that, so, that makes sense, yeah. Oh, sorry, carry on. Yeah, so, sorry, yeah, just, just thinking, in my view, that makes it slightly more achievable. Because right? it, it isn't like we're going to go overnight to 2% of GDP. Yeah. No, and I think that's a big concern. Certainly, we've certainly seen a few articles now this year with, you know, talk of the defence review. I know it's been tabled for Parliament uh, after the elections, if I remember correctly. Um, the, the talk is, oh God, it's another, it's another arms deal. It's another giant kind of uh, sort of mass waste of money. And I think the problem is the original sort of all the corruption surrounding the original arms deal has tainted the notion, and certainly in the public's mind, about getting anything for defense and that that's probably the wrong attitude to have um even though you know i, I share pe- I sort of i have rather a very sort of pessimistic outlook for in terms of budget in- increase although I, I think an incremental increase is certainly certainly far more possible than a, a giant lump doubling of the budget even though you know i suppose it would be nice to have but uh, yeah as, as you say according to the milestones in the defense review it's not it's not needed and it's not it's not necessary immediately it's simply just it's an increase of, as you say, about twenty five percent or so is enough to stop the rot. And I think if done like that, if done incrementally, you will be able to ensure your procurement process goes ahead. And I know you and I have discussed off the record and things like you know about the the um, the, the chapters that deal with increasing transparency and due process around the procurement process in the Department of Defense. And I think, frankly, that's probably one of the most important chapters in the defense review itself, I think. Um, but I, I think it would be more palatable, I suppose, or rather less less bitter in the public's mouth than to have a, to have a gradual budget increase in that, that giant sort of lump sum. Um, absolutely, and I think that certainly would, would make it more feasible. Um, and as you say, I suppose we are starting to see some of these systems come online already. I mean, there's the 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 patrol vessels, as you say, have been green lit, and I think I remember um, hearing. I think on I think they're due for 2018, if I remember correctly, for delivery. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, so you know, there's that. There's the things like the the Badger offshore uh, badger offshore patrol the badger entry infantry fighting vehicle and things like uh, sort of the the project for Stula to check, replace the sample trucks which are now 50 years old all of these things are very important um, but if done on a sort of gradual basis as you say I mean that's um, probably a lot more yeah uh, a lot more feasible I think yeah um, but I think turning towards the, the that that aspect of it in terms of the systems required, um, you know, if you look five years ahead, say we're going, okay, we're going now to 2019, 2020. Ironically, <laughs> I suppose Vision 2020 is headed towards anyway. But um, what do you see the South African Defence Force having in 2020? I mean, I've mentioned a few things, I suppose, like the, you know, the, 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 the patrol vessels and things like that. But going further ahead, um, well, I suppose further ahead in about six years, I guess it's maybe not that far ahead. What major procurement projects do you see being prioritized uh, by the South African Defense Force? Not by the Department of Defense, okay. I should say. Sure. John, just to go back a step, um, yeah. I don't think we will see another arms deal. Right. In that we won't see the same kind of lumping together of four or five different requirements. The way the arms deal was structured was a mistake. 
Mm. It was not. It was not a great idea to bundle together the requirements for trainers for biases aircraft for submarines and ships all together in, in one contract or at least one set of contracts. Mm. So um, the, the talk about a second arms law is really it doesn't make any sense because any future acquisition will be handled the same way as, as the Badger was under Project Hook uh, Faced It, which mm. will be separate, independent, and one on site. Well, there you go. As you said, the parts about opening up the process are massively important. Uh, for example, currently every single uh, defense force purchase is first placed on what's known as the, the SCAMP list, SCAM standing for Strategic Capital Acquisition uh, Master Plan. And the Defense Review speaks about making that public, which will be able to... So, in other words, as, as a member of the public, you'll, you'll be able to look and see exactly what the defense force is deciding to buy over the next say 10 years, which then feeds into what you're asking about, or what, what are the plans for the next six or seven or eight years? And those are really around a, a few main issues. First of all, there's a desire to increase the capability of these, these special forces. So you may fa- find that they'll be uh, given new vehicles or uh, at least better equipment to, to, for which to, to, to do their jobs. Right. There's a serious, serious, serious requirement to replace the obsolete C-47 TP Dakotas uh, in the transport role and the maritime patrol role. At the same time, the uh, CASA C-212 light transports are quite old and... and the caravans, yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, the Air Force's C-130BZs are, I mean, they're all over 50 years old and they need replacement. So I'd say the current major requirements are for a new maritime patrol aircraft which will occur under Patrick Metzi, and for new transport aircraft to replace both the C-47s, uh, the, the C-212s, and the light rolls and the C-130BZs in sort of medium to heavy roll. Aside from that, obviously, there's the there's Project Biro to uh, acquire new offshore and inshore uh, patrol vessels. Right. This is to... Uh, Augments the the four frigates which are currently being used, and to replace the three uh, warrior class uh, OPVs which are currently being used in the world, but which are really, again, fifty year old uh, ships. Aside from that, as you mentioned, Project Priscilla and, and Project Sapula, those are to replace the army's uh, ancient trucks and AP, APCs. Was no, Project Sapula. Uh, sorry, uh, I yes. it <laughs> Whistle is correct. Uh, that's for the trucks. The pool, I believe, is for the APCs. Oh, right, right. Okay. And um, I would say those are currently the only pressing requirements that I see in the next few years. Looking further ahead, there's a desire to acquire new uh, aerial refueling aircraft, which might come... So hold on, hold on, Darren. Sorry, you, you broke up there. Um, can you just repeat what you said from um, uh, shit? You were talking about the transport aircraft, um, and then okay. the uh, yeah, it would be I'll yeah. Try. Okay, can you carry on from there? Richard will right. just cut this out. Something else that that needs, that needs to be looked at uh, quite uh, soon is a need for a long-range strategic transport aircraft something the size of the Airbus A400M that could transport a large number of, of, of troops uh, to any point in Africa to, that could uh, 
evacuate them at the same time with you know with with the increased number of flights, and which is capable of airlifting the South African Army's heavy armored vehicles, such as the Wokot, the Rattle, the Badger, uh, which can carry a, a Royal Falk or an Orix helicopter without having to dismantle the gearbox. The reason that's important is that if you dismantle the gearbox on those aircraft, it takes a full 24 hours to reassemble it and bring it to service. Plus, that requires uh, the use of a clean hangar. Whereas if you just dismantle the rotors, the aircraft can be in action under field conditions within four or five hours. Which obviously makes a massive no. difference if you're if you're actually like Bangui, where the hours matter. Right, and then I suppose looking further down the line as well. I mean, if in, in terms of aerial refuelers, something like Bangui. I mean, those those Gripen need not have been deployed nearby. They could have simply been on station without having to sort of leapfrog and hop about. Um, hypothetically speaking, assuming all permission granted. Um, I, I think mid-air refuelers would have added in a very interesting operational range, I suppose, to the Gripen jets. Yeah, exactly. If you look at the, the deployment, yes, it did only require one stop in uh, Zambia, but the aircraft weren't carrying any bombs. They were fitted with uh, air-to-air missiles and underwing tanks, which implied that in order to get into action, they would have to land somewhere. Uh, the support aircraft would have to uh, land there as well, uh, offload all the bombs and the various bombing racks and, and so on, load them up, and only then could they fly into the situation and, and have an effect. With aerial refueling, they could have carried out that mission directly from South Africa without any, any delay except for the flying time hmm. to, to the area. At the same time, I mean, aerial refueling also helps you with transports. So you have an aircraft like the F-100M, which could be refueled in the midair, which means the same people understand that they see the range of, of a, let's say, an A400M. Uh, it looks impressive, but the more weight you add, the more cargo you add, that range just drops massively. So from being able to, to fly all the way from here to Cairo, it can now only fly, you know, let's say, a quarter of the distance. Whereas with aerial refueling, you, you, you can load those aircraft to the absolute brim and still fly those, those long-range missions. Absolutely. And I believe I remember seeing a few of the at least in the promotional videos from, from Lockheed Martin and Boeing and uh, other airlift manufacturers, they, they all like to punt as well that these airlifters could also be used often in a modulated, very, very quick to replace kind of way as refuelers themselves, um, which I think is quite, a, quite an interesting adaptability to that, that, that is, you know, I suppose, worth considering as well, I guess. Correct. You know, that's, that's one of the considerations. And that's where the, the C-130, in the form of the KC-130, the F-100M, and Embraer's KC-390 have an advantage in that they have the ability to, to refill built in. The downside there is that some of the aircraft, such as the C-130, cannot refill your fighter aircraft across the full envelope. So if you have grippings that are, let's say, very heavy, they can't necessarily be refilled by C-130 um, at so certain altitudes. Another issue is that if you have to use your your cargo aircraft as refuelers, it means less aircraft available to carry cargo in emergency or to carry paratroopers or, or whatever else you need to do. So I think the ideal would be to require dedicated refuelers like the MS Military A330 MRTT, which can be used to carry cargo if, if needed, but can also are also much better at performing that, that refueling role. But that's sort of a nice to have. And if the budget doesn't go that far, it's, it's also it's very great to have the ability in these um, 
you know, aircraft like this, you want that in your F4 net. Yeah. Excellent. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I certainly yeah, I agree with you. I think it would be, you know, in a perfect world, I think it would be great if we could actually have the the fleet required. At least, I mean, we're not talking sort of, you know, joint operation, war on terror, enduring freedom kind of stuff here. You know, we're just talking about sort of airlift to a country in Africa, taking men and material and possibly, you know, mid-air refueling, which is, you know, it seems like, you know, it sounds, I, I would imagine, certainly to South Africans, that we're talking about a lot of capability here. And this is really actually not that much, um, you know, in the, in the, the, the broader scheme of, 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 of things that are that are possible, I suppose, within the realm of military science and engineering. Um, but it, it, it's certainly things that are useful. And I think um, in, that, in that aspect, we can, we can sort of, uh, I suppose, moving away from the, the procurements and the projects and the and the financing and things like that. We're looking at the the, the, the intervention brigade now with the South African Defence Force um, doing, by all accounts, excellent work there um, and, and conducting themselves very well along with the Tanzanians um, and I suppose ostensibly the Malawians as well. Um, and I suppose I, I think what I'd like to just chat about now is, I mean, assuming something like the DRC happens again, because, I mean, let's face it, the intervention brigade has so far been a pretty successful model for military force against rebel groups. Now, that force intervention brigade, even though it's not modeled on the, the SADAC standby force, obviously would have benefited greatly from the lessons learned during exercises there. That SADAC force, as I'm, I'm fairly confident in saying, is the only one that actually has that sort of spare manpower and capability to actually get involved in these kinds of high-tempo, long-term combat operations. I mean, you can make arguments about East and West Africans, but the East African forces, particularly Kenya, are involved fighting Al-Shabaab. In West, the, in West Africa, the Nigerians are preoccupied with Boko Haram and, you know, um, uh, MEND and all sorts of regional security issues. Central Africa, obviously, the, you know, the, the brigade has, has fought, well, it never really sort of existed in the first place and it's kind of fallen apart. And in North Africa, well, it's pretty much a case of recovery from the Arab Spring. So I think my point is, I, I, I fail to see a scenario in the next 10 years at least, certainly I dare say the next 20 years, where SADC won't be called again uh, to, to, to intervene on behalf of the United Nations or even the African Union. Um, in a sort of aggressive stance operation as we've seen now in the DRC. Um, I, I strongly believe that that's something that will happen again. So I think in that sense, um, what, because we, you know, if you've, anybody who's listening, if you've seen African Defense Review, you'll see that we've covered quite a lot of DRC stuff, Darren and I combined. And I think I'd be very interested to just chat about quickly what would be, needed, I suppose, from the FIB, from the Intervention Brigade's perspective and from the South African contingent's perspective in terms of equipment, in terms of con control, co command and control, logistics, all those kinds of things. I mean, you've talked broadly about airlift and things like that, but on the ground in the next 10 to 20 years, assuming these, these sort of SADAC forces get called again into another country on another operation, what would be the most useful thing to bring with, I guess? It's almost like a, a hiking question. <laughs> well, the first thing I'd say is manpower. If you look at the the, the CR right now, it, that, 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 it's the, the very scenario which you're describing. Mm. 
the African Union, the peacekeeping force that is falling apart, can't just withdraw its forces. And there are no forces available from anywhere else in Africa, which has resulted in the, the Europeans having to come once more to the party and provide forces. Ideally, SADC would be able to intervene there. But with SADC contributing to the FIB, there really is no spare capacity. Uh, and that's one area which I hope the Defence Review will help with Africa. And, and that's one battalion that has effectively exhausted our, our deployment. Uh, it is effectively 800 to 1,000 troops. Has that, that's yes. our capability at the moment. Exactly. And for instance, we deployed three three robots there, which means there are only uh, seven left available. Mm. You really can't deploy your entire force. So I'd say manpower is a big part. There's a requirement for more troops. Secondly, obviously, there's a requirement for joint communications. At the moment, every country in SADC uses a different standard of communications on different radio frequencies and uh, different actually sets of radios. So even now in the, in the DRC, the various units of the FIB can't communicate with, with, with each other directly. They've got to speak to a joint headquarters and then have that sort of relay across where you have the, you know, the old broken telephone problem. So there should definitely be an approach towards adopting a NATO-style joint standardization of, of uh, equipment. I'd say focusing on, on radios and focusing on uh, command and trust systems. Obviously, you don't really need to standardize on the specific equipment you use in terms of your vehicles, your weapons, and all the rest, because that doesn't really matter. There's not, not going to be a requirement for, let's say, a South African unit to start using weapons from, from Malawi or, or Angola. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think we can foresee for the, you know, the foreseeable future at least that units will still deploy as national units within, let's say, a static overall brigade or something similar. So, yeah, my view would be um, you should try and make sure that turn standards are, are the same. So, one example that has been mentioned is South Africa has its own national data link called LinkZA, which right. is something that, that doesn't exist anywhere else in Africa. So there's been a proposal to create a LinkZA compatible um, AU-wide or static-wide start with uh, data link protocol called, let's say, Link Africa, mm. which then could be something that is held to standard within the static region and could then be built into every new piece of equipment being acquired by any country in static. The downside here is that static really isn't that close politically enough to do all this just yet. If you look at the static brigade, it exists really in name only. Mm. Yes, there have been a few exercises and whatnot, but there's really no intervention whatsoever. There's no joint headquarters, there's no um, joint training. Well, there's joint training, but it's, it's an exercise every few years. So mm. there's no regular fixed uh, thing. It certainly isn't anywhere near the level of joint training that you see in NATO and elsewhere. So I'd say those are the priorities. Really just focus on the sharing communications, uh, sharing command and control to you know, a certain extent, having an increased manpower or increased men and soldiers, and uh, yeah, really just being able to have these joint deployable headquarters. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um... That's, uh, I mean, I hadn't actually considered the, the, the link ZA aspect of it, but now that you mentioned it, it's a, it's a yeah, I mean, that, that, that there's a whole host of sort of benefits that I can think of in my, in my, in my mind that would be 
be useful to most African militaries. And even though the capability doesn't exist at the moment, it's not it's not light years away. You know, we're not we're not talking about thermal camouflage here. We're talking about um, sort of yeah, uh, radios and artificial radar and just sort of con- connecting them together and things like that. I suppose. Um, Correct. So and then just so yeah. to follow on there, sorry. Sure. No, Something no. else that could be useful in that case is that once you have that, you can start looking at sharing certain uh, types of capabilities. So, for instance, if you look at um, okay, one problem with radio is that radio is line of sight. Mm. So even on the DRC, our various units can't speak to each other because they're too far away. They have to relay them via other bases or, or, or units in the area. Uh, the US response to this has been to develop what they call BACN, B-A-C-N, which, mm. is, which stands for Battlefield Air Comms Node. And the idea of this is it's an aircraft which is really just equipped with a bunch of radios. And all it does is it just extends the range of the radios and it just transforms between, let's say, your, your, your ground radio and your air radio and your various protocols for your data lakes. Right. Now, so Africa has, you know, in its doctrine, has a concept of it, which it calls Telstar. And, um, Telstar, you say? Yeah. It was named after the first telecom satellite. That's where that name sounds familiar from, right. And the idea was, at the time, you'd fly, let's say, an Impala or a Cessna 1A2 somewhere on the battlefield, and this aircraft would be fitted with both uh, air radios and ground radios, and it would have equipment to automatically just relay the signals back. So Bacon is really just take this Telstar on steroids. It's been able to not only do relaying, but also transform between various protocols. So looking at that kind of idea, you could conceivably have a Link Africa setup, along with, let's say, part of the force using your um, legacy radios, and an aircraft or platform like that being able to transform in real time between the, the various uh, protocols and, and, and types of radios. Something else that could be used the same way, let's say, NATO has, is an airborne early warning, early warning uh, aircraft. Hmm. So those are very expensive, they're quite prices operate and acquire, and the, if you could share the costs of those, it would be you know, definitely a lot simpler, a lot, uh, I think, it would make it more likely that capability would be able to be brought in. And they're certainly not beyond the pale in terms of uh, conceptualization. I know a lot of countries, in, in NATO countries, for example, are, are sharing uh, strategic airlift uh, sort of uh, aircraft simply just to burden the you know, shoulder the, the extra cost. So certainly, it's not it's not impossible um, for an African Union framework to to incorporate something like that in terms of airborne uh, early warning. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly I think certainly could have very very important benefits, I suppose, to any sort of um, deployment that that certainly SADC forces will get involved in. But uh, I think with that, I mean, unless do you have any sort of uh, yeah, I suppose let's let's close with that and just go with. Um, what would you say would be your final word on the South African Defence re- Review? I mean, if you had to, if you had to say one thing about it to those people who are affected or interested in the South African Defence Review, what would that be? I would say the most important thing to understand is that the Defence Review, uh, the ideas behind it are about reforming the Defence Force. They're about bringing the uh, budget for uh, salaries back into line. So, for example, it's currently 
with the defense force spends over seventy percent of the budget on personnel salaries. Mm. The idea is to bring that down to about forty percent. So you have a forty percent personnel uh, cost, forty percent capital budget, and a forty percent operational budget. Um, the focus on buying new equipment is really a bit of a red herring. My 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 advice would be that if you look at the defense review, look at it in terms of reforming the, the defense force, of rethinking what the defense force should, should, should be, what it should look like, and what it should be doing in the next 10 years. Right. Absolutely. Well, great. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the only thing I can add to that is to highly, highly recommend that anybody interested in the defense review actually read all 400 pages of it. Um, I, I think I'd be surprised, surprised if the majority of those people sort of listening have actually read it, but I, I strongly recommend you guys do. Um, it's, it's probably the most important defense document we have at the moment, um, if not in South Africa, then certainly in the region. But uh, yeah, Darren, um, thank you very much. Um, uh, certainly appreciate the, 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 the chat and uh, yeah we'll speak to you soon